And tonight I think I want to speak about the, the heart and the essence of the Dharma. And, um, you know, to me this has been personally the most important um, aspect of the Dharma is the Four Noble Truths and the applications of mindfulness to develop insight and understanding. It took a long time for me to, my life, to uh, begin to look inside. And it was many years of uh, being very lost and very confused. And had to go through some pretty challenging and difficult times until um, I learned that if I wanted to know anything, I'm not speaking of school and learning history and mathematics or any of the educational subjects as important as they are, but if I wanted to learn anything about life, I needed to begin to look inside my own heart. And it never really occurred to me that this was uh, something that one could do. Until um, after flunking out of college and being readmitted back on warning, and my mother desperately saying, isn't there anything in the course catalog that would interest you? class was being offered and I looked through and wanted to try something new because um, most of the classes in college really didn't make any sense and didn't mean much to me. But there was one course that was called The Wisdom of the East and that perked my interest. And I thought, I'll go check it out. I didn't know anything about the wisdom of the East, to be honest, but I did know that growing up outside of Boston, I loved Chinese food. <laughs> and I loved going to Chinese restaurants and I liked the artwork and even the vibe of the waiters and waitresses was very different than Howard Johnson's which is kind of like Denny's out here and um, I'll never forget going into uh, this first class Wisdom of the East Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism and Zen and my professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I've never had a professor like this before. <laughs> Who is this guy? I thought to myself. And as he spoke, I never actually saw or met a person that was so embodied, was so sincere, wise, kind. He was really embodying what he was speaking and I realized uh, after some time hanging out with him in the class that whatever he knew, I wanted to know what he knew because he knew something that I didn't know. And he directed us to begin to read uh, the first uh, part of the class was on the Tao Te Ching by La Tzu, The Way of Life, the book of the Tao, Chinese philosophy. <coughs> I began reading the Tao Te Ching and it just spoke to me in a way that I had never been spoken to before, it just made so much sense to me on an intuitive level, and I 
couldn't believe actually that somebody thought about life in this way. It was really astounding to me. I'd never been exposed to this type of thing before. And one of the, uh, it's a very small book, 81 poems, or it's called Epigrams, and in one of the poems, Latsu, who wrote the book, The Tao Te Ching, he says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know what's inside you. And this uh, concept really started me. I never considered, as I said earlier, in my life, that if I wanted to know something, I needed to look inside here. And here was this being written and being speaking to me. If I want to know something, I need to look inside. And this really began my meditative journey many, many years ago. And so immensely grateful for. This journey of looking within came from a lot of despair and grief. I had, had a lot of death early in my life with a brother, a best friend, a grandfather kids that I went to school with, a couple of them I knew got killed, and so I was really in a deep place of grief and confusion and, and lostness, so lost I didn't even know how lost I was, and then this invitation, if I want to know something, to begin to look inside, and that's when I began to practice meditation. And that led me eventually to Buddhism, the Dharma, and so grateful for. And the Buddha's story actually really spoke to me. I identified with it. And um, identified with his journey to understand what is this life. Not that I had an identical upbringing, but there were certain aspects of um, what happened in the Buddha's search that I definitely had some resonation with. And it's called in Buddhism um, that the Buddha met the what's called the heavenly messengers. And it is said, of course, that um, he didn't meet them until he was 29 years old. And I actually began to meet them when I was four. I had my first realization that this life was not going to last. And then it was further compounded by the time I was nine with my brother, my best friend, and my grandfather had died. But it set me off in a place of profound confusion for many, many years. But it is said that in the time of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, that when he was at the age of 29, he went out of his palace, and there he got exposed to these messengers that awoke in him um, to the mysteries, the sorrows, the challenges, the potentials of life. He ran across at first a very old person and when inquired, who is this old person? He'd never seen someone so wrinkled and old and bent over because he had lived a very sheltered life. His father was trying to protect him from seeing anything that would concern him because he was forewarned when, he, when Siddhartha was a baby. Some astrologers came and three or, the, three or four of the astrologers said he'll become a great king, but one said no, he'll become a Buddha. So the king was very concerned and kept him in a very sheltered life. So when he went out of the palace, on this one day when he was 29 years old and 
he got exposed to the realities that no one can escape from aging. When he saw this old, decrepit person, he asked his charioteersman, Chana, who is this person? And Chana said, this is a person that's old. If you live long enough, you will get old. There's no escape from aging. This is the first heavenly messenger. The second one was encountering the person that was dead. I mean, was sick. Very, very sick. And when Siddhartha asked about this, he says, this is, you know, in the, you know, we can try to live our lives healthily as possible, but we cannot escape from illness. This was the second heavenly messenger. The third heavenly messenger was death and seeing a corpse on the side of the road and realizing, uh, China said, that no one can escape from death. This really um, deeply, deeply shook up Siddhartha Gautama. If everything's going to just end with aging, illness, and death, what is this life? His desire to become a king had lessened greatly. And the fourth heavenly messenger is that he saw this holy person, this person walking by with kind of robes on, a shaved head, but this person had a walk, a gait that was very different than any other person he'd ever met. This person had some serenity and some calmness. And when Siddhartha asked, who is this person? China said, this is a person that is dedicating their lives to awaken, to understand what is this life. And when Siddhartha saw this fourth messenger, Siddhartha was very, um, indeed, uh, overjoyed that it's actually people actually dedicate their lives to understand what is this life. And so he decided that this is what he wanted to do. And he planned his uh, departure from the palace. His father got wind of it. The great king, who had so much money, said, please, please don't go. I can promise you anything. And Siddhartha said, all right, I'll, I'll ask for three things. And Siddhartha, the king got very hopeful because he was kind of like the, the Bill Gates here or whatever. <laughs> a lot of money. And um, a lot of jewels and palaces and so forth. And um, Siddhartha said, prevent me from aging, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from dying. The king could not fulfill those wishes. But the king begged again, and Siddhartha said, all right, two things. And since some hope came up, surely I can do two things. And Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting old, uh, prevent me from getting ill. And the king could not do it. The king, nevertheless, kept on begging, please, please, surely I can grant you something. Surely I can grant you something. And Siddhartha said, okay, well, grant me one thing. Again, a glimmer of hope came up. The king said, please, tell me. What do you want? And Siddhartha said, prevent me from dying. And the king couldn't do that. And so Siddhartha left the palace, left his princely garments behind, took on rag rolls, shaved his head, on the eve of when his wife was giving birth to the son. Pretty outrageous to be leaving the palace on that time. Siddhartha knew, of course, coming from a princely family, that there would be plenty of people around to care for the wife and for the baby. And he left that palace. Now, before you think he's a really big louse, it's good to know that later, after he attained his awakening, 
came back to the palace to his wife, to his son, and he shared with them what he had learned, and they too awakened. So it's nice to know that even though he left, he comes back, and he gives them the noble inheritance. So he traveled as he went away from the kingdom and studied with all these different teachers and learned everything they learned, meditative meditation teachers, until to the point that each of these teachers would say, okay, you know everything I know, now you can teach. And it still was not enough. And eventually uh, he left those teachers and then he'd heard about that if you punish the body through practices of self-mortification, this is the way to awakening. And so he practiced with these other ascetics very strenuously to the point of exhaustion and potentially um, it could have killed him. He was down to eating supposedly one grain of rice a day. When he touched his belly, he touched his backbone. At a certain point, Siddhartha realized the futility of self-mortification. This was not the path to awakening, that I need to care for this body and left these ascetics and got some food and took care of himself, regained his health. And realizing that he'd been traveling so much and studying with this teacher and that teacher and this teaching and that teaching and that um, there was no more else, nowhere else to go. And he decided to just take his seat underneath a very beautiful tree and made a resolve that there's no other place to go. I'm going to just stay here. And this is where I will be and I will... Um, Awaken. I will try to awaken. And it is said that as he sat in that tree, he recalled a memory of when he was a younger child. And he was out on, under, underneath another tree. And it was one of those beautiful, incredible spring days where the winds were just right. And it was just gorgeous. And he was just, recalling that memory just filled him with joy. And then after that moment of that recollection of that memory and the joy, another moment arose with him that filled him with great sorrow as he recalled that also on that day, as he sat underneath that tree as a boy, feeling the beauty of the day, he looked across on the field and the farmers were just beginning to uh, get their oxen and plows and they were beginning to cut into the earth to prepare for the plantings. And as the plow was being uh, put into the earth, his sensitivity was so heightened because of this incredible day and just feeling the beauty and this love of life and love of the world that he almost like just intuitively or felt like he could hear the screams of the worms being cut open by the plow. And that filled him with great sorrow. And this just very ironic and paradoxical moment of how incredibly wonderful this world is and how incredibly painful it can be. And as a way of perhaps self-soothing himself, it's said that he, as a young boy, became mindful of his breath in and his breath out. And so underneath that tree, so many years later, recalling this memory, he began to become mindful of his breath in and his breath out. And it's said that his concentration and awareness deepened, he 
was gaining more and more insight and momentum into deeper understanding of this life. And there was supposedly this uh, being called Mara that was nearby there and watching him meditating and watching his concentration awareness going and experiencing this guy's really going deep. And and Mara, he's kind of known as the tempter. So you could say almost on a physical manifestation Mara exists, but also on a psychological manifestation we all know Mara. Mara's the tempter. And Mara could see that Siddhartha's concentration and awareness was growing and growing and decided you've got to put a stop to this. He didn't want anyone to become a Buddha or to awaken. And so at first he, he would fought him or wanted to attack him with armies of fear to induce so much fear in him that he could get up off his seat and go away. And Siddhartha recognized that Mara was there and that Mara was... Uh, putting on all of these armies of fear and, and, and Siddhartha Gautama just looked at him and just said to him very clearly that I see you Mara I see you fear and didn't move but just said I see you I see you through and through and through and the metaphor goes as, as if a whole stream of arrows were coming at you they all turned into lotus blossoms his fear could not move Siddhartha Gautama and then Mara was outraged and decided I'm going to I'll distract him with temptation and seduction and got all these images of seducing him to get him off his seat. And again, uh, Siddhartha said, I see you, Mara, with your seduction. You cannot move me even a, 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 a moment. And so Mara kept on casting on these armies of trying to get the Buddha off his seat, but every time Mara did something, the Buddha would just say, I see you, Mara. And it said in the early, late watch of the night that uh, Siddhartha Gautama awakened and had these great realizations. These realizations is the realization of the inescapability of suffering, that there is suffering in this world. And as much as this is the wonderful joys, there's, there's the sufferings, there's, there's getting ill, there's getting to dying, being separated from those that you care about, there's being in uncomfortable situations, difficulties, uncertainties, I mean the list goes on and on, trying to make livelihood, so forth, there's difficulties. And so there was this, just this great, like, very sobering realization of this suffering, these challenges in this life. As wonderful as it is, there's also these challenges. So he's just really able to name that, to acknowledge it. This became known as the noble truth of suffering, this great realization. And then upon realizing this very deeply, he had a second powerful realization, an understanding of the causes of suffering. This is called the noble truth of the causes of suffering, this profound realization of its causes that I'll get back to in a few moments. The third realization is really connected to the fourth realization in the sense that there can be an end to this suffering through a path. 
So the third great realization is that there can be an end to the suffering through the eradication of the causes. And the fourth is the path, the way to live our lives to lessen and potentially end suffering. Thus, at the end of these great four realizations, Siddhartha Gautama became known as the Buddha, which means the awakened one. I love that as a definition, the awakened one, the unconditioned, it experienced the unconditioned. And it is said that even through the, the Buddha's lifetime, he attained his enlightenment around the age of 35, 36, and lived till he was 80 years old, and it is said that Mara would still come every now and again throughout the rest of Buddha's life and visit the Buddha. So it's very funny because the stories go that every time that Mara came, the Buddha would always see him and say, I see you, Mara. Would you like to come in and have some tea? And Mara would, ah. every time he'd go away. Mara would come in all these different manifestations, but every time he was seen, and he was invited. The Buddha invited him, come, come, stay here. Come. With Mara, he didn't want anything to do with it. So in our meditation practice, we might discover that Mara comes to visit us too. And it's very powerful for us to name in our own practice when Mara visits, I see you. I see you through and through and through. So what did the Buddha discover underneath this tree as far as the causes of suffering? And to me, this is one of the most important um, understandings for us to consider and to look at. Because if we can begin to understand the causes, we can begin to release ourselves from these causes. If we can begin to understand that tangle, we can get untangled. And of course, the path to the untangling is this noble eightfold path. But first is a, a deep understanding of the causes. And there's a very beautiful um, rendering of this causes of su suffering by Achan Amaro. And I don't have the full quote with me, but I, I, I know enough to, to share and to kind of unpack it a little bit. And he speaks about that the causes of suffering is craving. But I will say that actually there's one cause that's underneath craving that fuels all suffering, and that is unawareness, ignorance, not seen clearly. And it's not seen clearly because it's rooted in deficiency, and not enough. But he speaks about this craving that is a craving that is compelling and intoxicating. And it gives us birth into things again and again and again. So I don't know if anyone's ever related to feeling a type of craving that's compelling and intoxicating. Get on Amazon now with that one click. <laughs> one click, you own it! Boom! It's compelling and it's intoxicating. It's just one click. And it's yours. And you get it. It's going to make you permanently happy. <laughs> For about one minute. Till the next click comes up. So we talk about this sense of compelling and intoxicating that gives us into birth, into things again and again. Because it's seductive. So he talks about namely three types of suffering, or craving. It's the craving to feel good, sensual desire. Second is the craving to be someone. 
And the third is the craving to feel nothing. So the craving for sensual desire is not that these things that we use are bad. They're all right. But it's if we have a mistaken identity that somehow by getting these things, it's going to make us feel whole and complete. It's a type of a deficiency. There's an inner deficiency that I can get these things and this is what's going to make me better. I can find this partner and this partner is going to just somehow make me happy forevermore. It's nice to share, nice to have a partner. Don't get me wrong. There's times, of course, when I'm in bed next to my wife, I can still be the loneliest person in the world. She can't even do it for me. And so this sense of this sensual delight, I keep on trying to get this to feel good, this to feel good. This is what will make me feel whole. The problem is, when we look outside of ourselves for wholeness, it's difficult to have it last. So it doesn't mean we can't enjoy, but we also get a clearer understanding of where wholeness comes from. It comes from inside. So the sense of looking outside of ourselves for this lasting pleasure is, is rooted in some type of a deficiency. Somehow we have this belief that outside of us is going to make us whole. So the Buddha identified this. This is very powerful for us to begin to see how that plays itself out in our lives. Remember once an engineer in one of the classes teaching, so you know, I was taught that, you know, to get good grades, I got good grades. I was told that going to engineering is the, is the way to, for happiness, and I became an engineer. Then someone said, getting a BMW, then I got a BMW, and that made happiness. Then it was like getting a house, and, and I got all of these things, he said, and, and I don't know who I am. I, my life has no meaning. It's not that those things are bad. They're, they're all right, but they're just things. But what about inside our heart? The whole of trying to fill it up with, with something. So the craving, the sensual delight. I've often told this story too. You know, one time I was eating this ice cream, so foodie ice cream was so good, I was in satiation land. There was no deficiency. I was at one with Tofuti Cutie. <laughs> but then, then at a certain point, there was just one or two bites left. And then, what the hell am I going to do now? Like all the sadness came, all this dread. What am I going to do? I'm going to go get another one. But what's going to happen after that? And like you see, like the addictive compelling, compelling is intoxicating. And it's powerful because we bring awareness. Can I sit with this wanting creature inside me? And we see that it's like an itch that crescends up and, oh, I just totally want to scratch it. But then if we hang out long enough and acknowledge it and open it, I see you, Mara, I see you craving, I see you craving. And gradually it begins to disperse itself. And then you know, a little bit later we wonder, like, how could I even been so compelled and intoxicated by it? It's not even interesting anymore. We learn how to ride its way with our awareness. You know, and when we do eat, whatever it is we do, if we can bring our knowing awareness and be present to it, we're gaining our knowledge as well. But be mindful of the trap of looking outside of ourselves for some type of happiness, for some sensual delight. The second is related, but a little bit different of a twist. It's this craving to be someone, to be important, to be special. I got a Prius. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm this, I'm that, I, 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 I. All this stuff of trying to be self-importance. Now there's a certain thing as human beings, we have essential needs that we need, that it's important for us to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, 
but it's when somehow we are compelling and talk like I, I have to be seen by others to be special. To know my worth is to have others tell me how special or how wonderful I am. And, and so it, it, there's an old country western song, but I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and so this, this, this is the noble truth of wanting to be someone who's looking for love. Somehow I'm going to fill up my sense of who I am from some external source to make me special or worthwhile or important. And, and we get caught up in this, this, this aspect of wanting to be someone or to be liked or be accepted. And it's such a cause of so much suffering. We're leaving ourselves for another. The third type of craving is this craving to feel nothing. Sometimes in our lives, things get so painful. I know a number of you have heard this story before. Of, um, a couple of years ago, one of my sons, there was a possibility that he had lymphoma. And um, while we were in this few-week period of not knowing, I found myself over and over again, even when I was awake, I just wanted to sleep. I didn't want to be here. It was too painful. Opened up my eyes, and then it'd be amazing for about a split second, and then a second later, oh my God, does he have lymphoma? Turned out he has mono. I love mono. I tell you how much I love mono. Not that I wish mono on anyone either, but better than lymphoma. But I could see this interesting thing of just wanting to go to sleep. And then I began to realize, wow, there's a lot of times, I, you know, in the early years, I'll just go get wasted, or I can just go watch science fiction, or I can go have sex, and go eat food. I mean, there's just a million things I can do to not feel anything. It's like, wow. All these aspects of not wanting to feel something, to push it away. And this is also a place that we can get trapped. So I find that these three causes we can relate to, I can relate to so deeply in my lives, the sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. And in our practice, as we become mindful, we begin to recognize these aspects as arise and begin to work with them. So the third noble truth speaks about that there's an end there's a lesson into suffering and it's directly related to the second noble truth, this great realization as I begin to lessen this craving to feel the sensual delight, this craving to be someone, this craving to feel nothing. And how do we go about doing that? So the third noble truth speaks that there's a way out of it. This is very important. And the prescription is the Eightfold Noble Path. How to live our lives. This is very beautiful. We could spend, if, if we really want to, at least I consider, um, a great and powerful prescription of how to live my life with less suffering is to try to live with the Eightfold Steps. I think it's ingenious, um, this prescription that speaks about three different areas. The first is how to live our lives as far as ethically. If we are living, causing less harm, the happier we come. If we cause no harm or as least harm as possible, we'll, we'll have much more happiness, much more contentment. So the first three steps speak about how to live our lives, cultivating our virtue, our 
livelihood, our speech, our actions. And as we live our lives with more integrity, more harmony, it is said, and we can see in our own direct experience, like, you know, you don't have to claim this as gospel. See for yourself, when you're living a life of more integrity, you'll, you may notice, I have noticed, that my mind is much more easily settled and calm. Because it's, because I'm living, I'm living in harmony. I'm not living with a lot of remorse, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I'm living in more harmony, and that harmony begins to support my mind to become more settled. I begin to understand so clearly with my wise effort to restrain those parts of living my life that are destructive and cultivating areas that are non-destructive, that are supportive. I grow with our awareness, with mindfulness, with the concentration which begins to settle us down. When we begin to live our lives in a way that's in harmony, with integrity, with kindness, it supports the settling of the mind. And with these two combinations, this brings upon wisdom, insight, understanding, namely into these causes of suffering and its pathway out of them. So we don't have to look far. We can say that the heart and the essence of the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, are these four noble truths. The applications on how to realize them is through practicing awareness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feelings, mindfulness of the mind states, mindfulness of the teachings, these foundations of mindfulness to awaken. And what's very amazing is that these ancient teachings are also being applied in more modern-day different interventions, such as mindfulness-based stress reduction and other mindfulness-based approaches. Very brilliant of John Cabot Zinn, who founded Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction. He was sitting at Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, for a two week meditation retreat, being exposed to these profound teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the foundations of mindfulness, the marks of existence. And from such an inspiration of these profound teachings, he extrapolated these teachings and recontextualized these teachings that are they're found in what is now known as Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction. And it is sweeping the world. And it's very amazing to say that uh, we're in the middle of a um, really of a cultural revolution. Never before in the history of the world has been this convergence of the science and meditation. And some of the research that's coming out is quite astounding. But in the brain research and neuroplasticity and working with chromosomes and telomeres field called epigenetics, the study of meditation and its effect on, on genes. So I think I just wanted to bring that up about this convergence of the science science and meditation and that these living teachings that the Buddha taught so many years ago are also being verified, if you will, by some of our science You can imagine though my old Burmese Theravada forest monk teacher going, yeah, we know all about this, just get back to your breath. <laughs> and I think that he's probably right. But for us Westerners, it's actually very helpful to understand these connections between the practice and our bodies, the science, 
So anyways, I think I've said about enough. So maybe we'll just sit for another minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.